So we have made it to the end of the book of James. Uh, And thanks for taking the journey with us. I especially want to thank you for uh, leaning in to this journey. Uh, We've got lots and lots of questions. Uh, And that's so helpful to me as a teacher uh, because I know what I think needs to be communicated and I know what I think is of particular interest to me. But at the end of the day, what I really want to be as a teacher is someone who is helping all of us together get after the questions that are in our hearts when we read these passages of Scripture. And so uh, you're taking the time to continually read through James, uh, to listen to James, and to submit questions uh, has been incredibly helpful for me and hopefully has helped us craft a teaching series that has been uh, a little bit, uh, even a little bit more um, Poignant, if that's a fair word to say. Uh, this particular passage here, these last two verses in James, got a number of questions from you, so that was helpful to me, and uh, certainly as we get into these verses, you'll see uh, why that is. So, last two verses of James, as we bring this letter to a conclusion, uh, you'll see that James is a little bit different than Paul, right? When you read Paul, he takes about a whole chapter's worth of greeting everyone and anyone. Uh, James has no greetings. He just has a last word he wants to share with folks. This is what he writes, verse 19, chapter 5. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner uh, or someone who has missed the mark, has been on the wrong path, from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. End of letter. (laughs) Classic James, right, as he brings it to a close. And what I would suggest to you is, in many ways, the whole sermon, that's what we've said, this is more of a sermon than a letter, the whole sermon has been leading up to these last two verses. That Maybe this final point of his speaking and his writing we get to the very inner part of James's heart for his people. That he's worried. <laughs> that he doesn't want to see them fall away. That he doesn't want to see them wander from the truth and the consequences that come from that. So, let's take some time in trying to dig into this and see exactly what it is that James appears to be getting at. And I think to do that, the best way that we can do it is to ask a couple of questions and try to answer them together. Uh, And so the first question is, who are these wanderers? James is saying, uh, talking about people who are wandering from the truth. Who is he talking about? And this was the subject of a number of your questions that you submitted, uh, and very astutely so. Uh, Because we have this understanding theologically of once saved, always saved. And so what is this idea of wandering? Well, uh, I'm going to leave you in some level of suspense. We'll kind of wrap that up, hopefully wrap that up and tie a nice bow on it at the end. But suffice it to say that we can only assume one of two things are happening here. Uh, One of two things as the people that James is talking about is that either they are believers, right? Or they are people who for all intents and purposes, look like believers. Because James says, brothers and sisters, if one of you or one among you, right, so the subject, the context, puts them amongst the brothers and the sisters. And so either 
the wanderers are genuine believers or people who, for all intents and purposes, look like a genuine believer. And James says, if they wander from the truth. What does he mean when he says this? Wander from the truth. Well, at its core, when James uses the word truth, the Greek word aletheia, aletheia, it's the idea of Jesus himself. Right? Jesus says, I am the aletheia, I am the truth. Uh, but even in a broader sense than that, he's talking about the gospel, right? the message of Jesus, the truth of who Jesus is and, and what he has done uh, and what he intends to do. And so we can say when he says the truth, we're talking about Jesus, his gospel, and their implications. Is that fair? That's how we define truth in this context. He's talking about Jesus himself, his gospel, and the implications of this gospel. And so the implications are many, right? We're talking about beliefs and behavior. Or as James would put it, faith and works. Or hearing and doing, right? James is concerned with the whole gamut of what it means to be a Christ follower. And so he says, don't wander from this truth. Well, the word wander, planao, uh, is the same word, <clears throat> excuse me, in chapter 1 that was translated deceive. Remember that? Remember those, those like really full uh, analogies or illustrations that James was using of fishing and, and different things where he says that he's kind of like being lured or baited and you're pulled off the pathway, right, this, because, of your, because of the desires of your flesh, you're deceived. It's the idea of being, being lifted off one path and putting onto another. Well, here we get a very pure and literal translation of the same word. So we have the word wander. That is that you were on this path and now you're on this path. Does that make sense? And this path in some way is leading divergent to the pursuit of Jesus, His gospel, and its implications. Now, we need to pause and say a couple of things about this. And that is that when James speaks of wandering, he means an end result and the process of. Right? So, he doesn't just mean uh, you've wandered and now you're, you've renounced your faith. You're, you're far from Christ. You don't believe any of it anymore. He certainly does mean that. But that's the end result of the process whereby the wandering leads you to it. You see this? And so he means the process and he means the end result. So we need to pause and ask ourselves, how does this happen? How do we wander from the truth? How do we take a path divergent from pursuing Jesus, his gospel, and its implications? And I think there are three ways that we wander. Uh, and these are all inherent in James's full sermon here. Uh, and two of them may be a little bit more obvious to you than the first I'm going to share. But I want to suggest to you that this first one is equally as important and oftentimes lets you or others know that the wandering has begun. So the first way that we often wander is from the body of Christ. Right? So if, this is, if the truth is Christ, then we wander from the body of Christ. If the truth is the gospel, then we wander from the gospel community. Right? Is that we begin to isolate ourselves from communities 
of faith. And I understand circumstances of life, global pandemics, things like that, isolate us in ways that are non-intentional. But history has shown and personal experience has affirmed that when people begin a journey of wandering from the faith, it almost universally begins with isolating themselves from Christian community, from wandering from the body of Christ, assuming they don't need it, uh, or it's unimportant, or isn't beneficial to them, or just beginning to break ties because they know the intentions that are ahead. Wandering from the body of Christ. So I need to pause and say, uh, on the heels or still in the midst of a global pandemic, we're grateful for those who are joining us virtually this morning. We affirm uh, your health decisions and certainly don't uh, desire to change them in any way. But if those of you who are joining us virtually are doing so just because maybe it's easier to not have to fully interact with people, maybe it's not a health decision, can I encourage you to rethink that? To value community so much so that you're willing to invest in it because not so much of what you get, but also what you can offer. When we isolate ourselves from Christian community, we put ourselves in danger of walking a, a, diver, excuse me, walking a divergent path. The second way that we tend to wander from Christ, His gospel, and its implications is theologically, right? Is that we would wander from the message of Christ or wander from uh, the the reality, the principles, the truths of the gospel. That is, we're talking here about our beliefs and our structures. And when we say this, it's really important to pause. And, And church, I need to say this, as we go on in this talk, there's going to be a significant amount of nuance, right? So I'm asking you to listen with ears wide open and and engage with me fully. And here's some nuance that we need to really wrestle together with. James is not talking about people who don't cross every T and dot every I like you do. Therefore, they're wandering. He's talking about orthodox faith, right? He's talking about the core principles of what it means to be a Jesus follower. He's not talking about secondary issues. He's not talking about things where we don't have firm understanding of which option is correct. I'm talking about uh, beliefs about the end times, right? So does Jesus come back before a thousand year reign, uh, after a thousand year reign, or is the thousand year reign already going on? Some of you are like, I've never heard that before. You're okay, right? Because The core thing that we believe, the orthodox thing that we believe, is that Jesus is coming back to set all things right. You see this? If we diverge from that, then we're leaving behind a central part of the gospel. If we change our opinion from premillennialism to amillennialism to postmillennialism, then we've made a, a new theological structure. And listen, that's okay. Now here's a problem we find as a church. That is, because of Protestantism being the way it is, and listen, I'm a happy Protestant. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be Protestants. But because the nature of being Protestant means to protest against, right? That is, to break apart from and suggest someone else is wrong. What we have now 
uh, several hundred years into the Protestant Reformation and its movement, about three trillion different denominations with all kinds of different beliefs on secondary issues. And because of that, when you find yourself in a particular church within a particular denomination, you oftentimes find yourself with a particular group of people who hold a lot of the same secondary issues as you do. Here's what I need to remind you. That's not orthodoxy. That's not what James is talking about. And so far be it from you to suggest your brother or sister is wandering from the faith if he holds a different position than you do about the role of women in the church. Right? Or the particular mode of communion. Or... or uh, how, what kind of music a church should be using, or any other of the vast number of secondary issues. James is talking about the core principles of the gospel. Think about it this way. If we removed this belief, would it cripple the truth of the gospel? If the answer is yes, then it's orthodox. You see this? And this is what James is talking about. When we start to toy with those things and question those things is when we can find ourselves beginning to wander. So, wandering from Christian community, wandering from uh, orthodox theology, and then what I would say is wandering from um, the way of Jesus. Can we call it that? Or the, the life of the gospel. And of course, here I'm talking about our behaviors how we live, how we act. Now, again, I need to pause, and we need to speak in some nuance here, right? Here are some things that James does not mean when he's talking about this. He does not mean when someone messes up, right? Sin is universally true. We don't think, we don't rejoice in that truth, but we're all broken people who are going to stumble and mess up and screw up. That doesn't mean we're wandering from Jesus. He's talking about blatant, unrepentant, thumb your nose at Jesus and continue living a certain way. He's saying that that kind of life actually speaks to a heart that may be in full wandering mode from Jesus. Let's speak a little bit more nuance. (laughs) He's not talking about political positions, right? He's not talking about how you should or shouldn't respond to the COVID pandemic. All of these things that, we, quite frankly, we're trying to do our best, but we don't have chapter and verse to say, yep, there it is. That's how we're supposed to do it on the basis of the gospel. Now, if someone in their political views or their response to COVID is being arrogant, now that's a problem, right? Because arrogance is spoken about clearly in the scriptures. And so this is what we're talking about. We have to be very, very careful because one of the unfortunate realities of the church is we like to get on soapboxes. We like to get behind ivory towers and tell other people how they're messing up because here's what it keeps us from doing. Looking inside, right? And realizing, oh my goodness, I better be careful that I don't wander. So, when James is talking about wandering, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about wandering from the truth. Jesus, the gospel, and its implications. Thinking about it in a more practical way, we're talking about wandering from the body of Christ, the message of Christ, the way of Christ. Community, orthodoxy, and living on the basis of the gospel. When this is happening, it should alert us as a Christian community. 
We have to pause and ask a question that James doesn't address particularly in these two verses, but he's kind of been getting at through this whole sermon. And that is, how does this happen? (laughs) What leads people to begin the journey of wandering from the truth? What I would suggest to you is James has two clear-cut answers, and then I'm going to add a bunch of my own (laughs) afterwards. Uh, You can wrestle back and forth with these. I'm not suggesting to you that they're um, absolutely true or that James is suggesting any of them, but in my experience, I've seen them, uh, and they're important for us to wrestle with. But James's two are pretty clear, right? And the first is the hardest one, and so I'm going to get it out of the way first, and that's because we like to sin, Right? That is that we like to live a certain way. I'm not saying you in your redeemed state, but your flesh. James talks about this. The desires of our flesh, they're they're tempting us to to live in rebellion. It's a constant reality that we live in. And if we're not alert to that reality, that even though we have accepted and embraced the gospel, even though we have the Spirit of God living in us, even though... We honestly believe the truths of the gospel that's still in us until Christ fully redeems us when he returns is a flesh that's warring against that and that is desiring to deceive us, that is pull us off our path. So James has spent lots of words talking about the many ways this can happen from our tongues to putting faith in our riches and our wealth to exerting power over other people. And again, I remind you, we're talking here not about missteps, as huge as they might be, that when you are confronted in them, either by the Spirit Himself or a Christian brother or sister, and you repent and change your ways, that's not what James is talking about. He's talking about someone who says, this is how I'm going to live. It doesn't matter to me, these other implications. right? James is saying we, we ought to be aware of that. So, sin is one of the reasons. But but here's the problem, church. Most of the time, inside the halls of the church, when we see someone who's wrestling with their faith, right? Someone who's struggling, someone who is maybe on the path of wandering or considering or wrestling with, that's where we go, isn't it? While there's sin, they just want to sin. They just want to live their own way. They just want to do their own thing. And shame on us. Shame on us for doing that. Now listen, it may very well be in particular cases that that, that's what's going on. But there are a vast number of other things that are at play. And the one that James is pointing at through this whole letter is the issue of suffering. Right? Now listen, yes, Jesus said, if you come after me, you're going to be picking up your cross. Yes, Jesus said, count the cost. Yes, Jesus implied that in his name you're going to experience trouble in this world. That doesn't mean it's easy. And that doesn't mean for whatever reason that some people seem to have a lot more of it than other people. And that doesn't mean in the intense nature of suffering, whether it be relational uh, or physical or emotional or whatever, that it doesn't weigh heavy on our faith commitments and make us ask really hard questions about whether I want to keep going on in this way. I think James is talking about sin for sure when he's worried about this. 
But I think even more so in the front of his heart, he's worried about weary journeyers who have had a hard go of it, who are living in a foreign land because of rampant persecution and are struggling in their faith commitment. I think he has a heart that desires for a community of faith to rise up around these people, to support them, to engage with them, not in trite Christian phrases, but in honest agreement that this sucks and is hard and is painful and is difficult, but we'll live it together. You won't have to do it on your own. This is what James is calling his community to. What an incredible apologetic. How much different then? Well, that person just wants to live their own way. Suffering. It's important we consider it. Can I suggest some other reasons that I think often lead to the reality of wandering in faith? Uh, and I don't, you know, these happen in, in different ways and in combination. One is that people are inherently pragmatic, right? And so we're constantly assessing how's this working. And we're not always seeing the long haul, are we? We don't always have eyes that see and and believe Jesus' promise to come and fulfill all these things and to make everything right and to reverse every wrong that's been done to us. We're constantly asking the question in the midst of our faith journey, hey, is this working out like I expected it to? And here's one of the great failures of the church. We have oftentimes sold people a shallow faith that does not prepare them for the hard times. We've told them, hey, we've maybe not said this, but we've kind of created a culture that assumes it. Hey, if you believe Jesus, like things are going to really come into line for you. And everything's going to start making sense, even if it isn't easy. And we know that that's actually not true. But what we do know about faith in Jesus is that it gives us a hope that enables us to persevere in the midst of struggles. Pragmatism can be in the midst of heavy stuff or in the midst of basic stuff. And a lot of our sincerity in our faith is incredibly pragmatic, if we're being honest. I'm really engaged in prayer right now. Why? Because it feels like God's given me yes to the things <laughs> that I'm asking for, right? And listen, I speak from experience. That's how I speak from. I'm not suggesting that's true of you. It is true of me. Pragmatism. Can I suggest a couple of others that maybe are elephants in the room, but that we need to take time and address? The first is crisis, right? Crisis. And listen, crisis outside the church and inside the church. Trauma that has been experienced at the hands of Christian community, Christian leaders, Christian structures of hierarchy that deeply wounds the heart and the soul of people. Crisis inside the church, and then crisis outside the church. A a hard diagnosis, the death of a loved one, financial struggle, vocational upheaval, all of these things, global pandemics, and how to respond to it, all of these things weigh heavy on us. Crisis. 
Another one, I think, that often leads us into realities of wandering is what I'll call uh, change. Is that things are radically changing around us, right? Either my kids are grown up now, right? So Rachel and I talk about this all the time. We've got two high school boys. We're looking at colleges. Uh, empty nest is soon ahead of us. We remember when they were little, right? And in processing as a parent now versus then, it's radically different. And changes in life and in, in jobs and in seasons and in our world and society is changing radically. All of this stuff, it weighs on our faith. And we've got to be honest about it. And then one more for you. Big questions. Can we get honest for a minute? Big questions in life and about our faith. Questions that maybe our Sunday school teacher said, well, God's got it figured out. And that was good enough for us when we were four. But at 43, we're like, this is having all kinds of impact in my friends' lives, in my life, in my family's life. I don't understand how to process this. How do we engage with it? We oftentimes find in the church is that people begin wandering because the church hasn't taken the time to answer big questions or, better yet, provided people honest space to process big questions without castigating them as wanderers. This is really important for us to wrestle with as a church as we think about a passage like this because, as we'll see at the very end here, James is saying, who's the responsibility lie on for these wonders? Us. The Christian community is responsible for caring for them. And so, as a church, it is incumbent upon us to create communities and, and, and a culture and ethos within our very being that, it, that understands these realities and how they weigh on faith and creates uh, structures and systems and relationships that, that empower people to grow deep in their faith, that, that come alongside people to support one, one another, that allow people to ask big questions because we trust this community enough to know that we're not stepping outside of orthodoxy, but we're allowed to process within it so that we're guiding people towards Jesus, His Gospel, and its implications. See this? In our day, there is a word that is gaining more and more airtime on social media, especially, but elsewhere. It's not a new word. It's been around, it's been around forever, but in terms of faith and systems and structures, it's been around at least since the 60s. It's the word deconstruct. You heard this word recently? Deconstructing my faith. And so we see lots of people who are, who have had significant positions in the church and people who have been followers of Jesus for a significant time stepping away from that pursuit of Jesus in the name of deconstruction. Can we nuance again for just a minute? Deconstruction in and of itself is not bad. Hear me well. Wandering is bad. Do we see this? That is that if all the things I've just said are true, that weigh on our faith, crisis, change, all of these things, then some of our faith actually has to be deconstructed in order for us to be truly pursuing Jesus, His gospel, 
and its implications. Otherwise, we're actually restraining ourselves from it. No one here is talking about stepping outside any of the bounds of orthodoxy or any of the things we've always talked about here at Hope. This is the community that we are. But some of us have grown up with baggage from the church that needs to be deconstructed because it's keeping you from Jesus. Some of you have grown up with a faith that, quite frankly, is a little bit naive or shallow, and it just kind of depends upon the flannel graphs from Sunday school. And we praise God for those things. How great to have had the truth of the gospel spoken to you as a fifth grader. But you need the gospel in a more robust form as a 43-year-old than you did as a five-year-old. It's true. Right? And so as one author has rightly said, we don't keep wearing the onesies we wore as infants when we're 43 years old. Right? We wear bigger clothes. In the same way, our Christian clothes are going to be a little different than the onesies we wore when we first came to faith. Does this make sense? I think part of what James is talking about here is creating such such a culture within the Christian community that it enables growth, not wandering. It's incumbent upon us and me as a pastor, us as leaders, us as a congregation to stand and to take our place in creating this kind of culture together. Because, James says, that the end result of wandering, and this is hard truth, he says, is, is death. Right? Thanatos, the Greek word. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? <laughs> what does he mean by death? Well, I think he means two things. right? I think he, he means final death, final separation from God has a reality for people who have wandered. But he also means in the here and now the destruction that sin brings wherever it goes. Remember chapter 1 that sin, when it's fully conceived, gives birth to death like a baby. Remember that, that illustration that James used? Right? It's just like, you know, that even, even important to think about at, at, at the end, right? Obviously significant, but just as, as significant in the now that our wandering and the death that invites actually brings death into everything that we engage in. So, if it seems like the people that James is concerned about are brothers and sisters who might wander from the truth, how can he conclude then that if they wander the result is death. If death means separation from God at the end of days. Because after all, don't we believe in something called eternal security? Right Here we get into the part where we're going to try to tie a bow here. We'll see if it works. Right? Because don't we believe in something called eternal security? The people who have believed the gospel are kept by God and are eternally secure. And what I want to suggest to you is we do. We do believe in that. And we believe in that for a number of reasons. One of them is the great passage of Scripture from Philippians chapter 1 that reads like this. Paul writes, he says, being confident of this, that he who began, this is God, who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Right? Eternal security is not something we invented just to help ourselves. It's that if God begins a good work in you, he's going to see it through to its completion. 
Now again, we need to remember that when Paul writes these things, he's writing in the plural, not the singular. It's important, right? But nevertheless, this idea of eternal security is a reality. However, can I suggest to you that the Reformers said it better than we do? They use the phrase, maybe you've heard this before, the perseverance of the saints. Ever heard this phrase before, right? Sounds super theological. And basically what perseverance of the saints means, it doesn't mean once, you, once, uh, once saved, always saved. That's not, not, not what it means, right? Uh, it means that people who are genuinely saints will persevere. Does this make sense? You see the, the slight nuance difference here? And here's what we're trying to root out when we talk about this. Is that there is a, a, a belief system in the church that basically is, you could call it easy believism, you could call it, some people call it cheap grace, whatever, all those are negative words. That's probably not fair. But the idea is that, well, you believed in Jesus and then you could spend the rest of your life living apart from him, but because you believed in him back then, then you're saved, because once saved, always saved. And what I would suggest to you is that's not perseverance of the saints, and it's not eternal security. It's actually not biblical. Because the New Testament teaches us that those who have honestly come to faith persevere. Does that mean they don't wander sometimes? No, it does not. It means they come back. And so, how do we know who these people are at the end of this whole thing? We know who they are based upon whether they come back. Right? Were they actually believers? Well, how they respond and if they come back in their life cycle demonstrates that. Whether they had just heard, as James has been warning about, whether they had actually welcomed and believed but now are struggling and are, are wandering either in sin or in, in challenging orthodoxy or removed from Christian community in some way. This, I think, is how we thread the needle of what's going on here. That yes, God has promised to keep those who have come to him. Jesus himself promises this in his teaching about the Good Shepherd, right? We should believe that. We believe in assurance of salvation. We believe in eternal security. We just happen to believe it's better stated as perseverance of the saints, is that those who are genuinely converted persevere to the end. Now here's the issue in the Christian community. As you look around at your brothers and sisters, or think about other people in faith, we think we know (laughs) whose hearts are fully given to Jesus, but that's not really for us to know, is it? And so... We are called to live in this strange dichotomy as a Christian community that on one hand sees everyone as brothers and sisters in faith, and on the other hand is always looking out for each other to make sure that we don't wander. Does this make sense? James calls us, in essence, to care enough about each other to step in. Think about it this way. To first be alert. And it's really important, again, a little more nuance for us here. When, when we're talking about being alert, uh, you need to be alert to yourself first, right? Because you're part of the community too. You need to be concerned about your own 
wandering as it is, right? So Jesus says it pretty famously this way. Before you go pluck the speck out of someone else's eye, make sure you look for the log in your own, right? (laughs) The essence being we like to find little issues with other people. We don't like to look internally with ourselves. We need to be alert. We're asking ourselves regular questions. What is... What is the orientation of my life demonstrating? And creating, you know, as we talk about in our community groups, rhythms of life that are, that are enabling us to walk in faith. But it also means being alert for each other, right? Caring enough about each other to care about our walks of faith. The Christian walk all throughout the New Testament is presented in only one way, as, as a plural. It's never presented as an individual. Because all the New Testament writers know if it was up to you and you alone, (laughs) you'd have an awful hard time seeing it through to the finish line. So we care. But we're not just alert, we actually care enough to intervene. Now this is hard, isn't it? This is challenging. And so we need to think again. What does it mean to intervene appropriately? Well, the context helps us here. Because how does James call them? Right? He says, brothers and sisters, some among you might wander from the truth. Even those who he perceives or who he wanders, that may, who he wanders, W-O-N-D, not W-A-N-D, right? Might be wandering. He still calls them, treats them, pursues them as brothers and sisters. This speaks to us about the posture of how we live as a Christian community, does it not? That even when we're concerned about someone else from our number or or in another place, that we approach them, that we consider, think of them, that we engage them as brothers and sisters. Not in a condescending way. Gently and graciously asking questions out of care, not speaking out of condemnation. Notice here too, that we've just got through a passage where James is careful to say the elders ought to pray for the sick. Now we've talked about this, you know, spiritually wise, whatever. Here he makes no such classification, does he? He says, you, all of you, the whole Christian, this is the whole church's job. This is not a pastor's job, although pastors should do it. This is not the elder's job, though they should do it. This is the whole church's job, right? We've got to all be looking out for each other in this way and willing to intervene in a gracious, loving, for the sake of my brother and sister kind of way that notices when someone hasn't been engaged in Christian community and some comes to them gently, text or email or phone call and says, hey, I notice you haven't been around in a couple of weeks. Everything okay? It's gracious and kind and thoughtful and caring. It's one of the things we ask our community group leaders to regularly do for people who are in their community group. So if you're getting uh, texts from them and you're like, stop it already, that's my fault. I asked them to do that, right? But it's a good thing. And you should do that for each other. In fact, you might be looking around and saying, hey, I've noticed so-and-so hasn't been here for a couple of weeks. I'm certain everything's okay. But I love them enough to say, hey, I missed you. How's it going? Everything okay? It's really important. It's critical. It's significant. And they might be years upon years from ever considering wandering, but your text in that moment 
might stave that off even in the now. Or that's willing to go to someone and say, hey, man, I've noticed that life is really hard for you right now. How are you doing? I've noticed that there's, there's like a crisis around you. Are you okay? How can I care for you? How can I stand with you? How's your faith? What are you hearing from God in this season? Right? Not in a judgmental way, but going for them in care. Recognizing long before they ever come to you and say, I don't know if I believe in Jesus anymore. That says, hey, I'm standing with you because what you're going through is hard. And I'm not sure I could, in, could, could endure it. And you are, and I, let me stand with you. Or hey, I, I, you know, uh, now please don't all of you text me after the service. Hey, I know your kids are growing up now and you've got to think through college. Like, oh, how is it processing this new season of life, you know? Being engaged proactively is what James is talking about here. Not trying to convince someone 10 years down the road to reverse their course. Or, hardest among them all, maybe saying, hey, I've noticed that you've been living this way. Listen, far be it from me, suggest to you that I make all the right choices in life. But I love you. I feel like there's a better way. Can we talk? Hard stuff. But James is saying, if we're going to be a community that is constantly pointing each other towards Jesus, His Gospel, and its implications, this is how we live. For the good of each other and for the glory of God. Because when we do it, and these are strong words from James, are they not? He says, we save them, Greek word sozo, almost universally reserved for the work of God and Jesus, right? And then we cover a multitude of sins. So some of you asked rightly the question, doesn't God do that? How are we supposed to do that? Uh, And your question is quite astute. Yes, God does that. But God is in the business of engaging his creation with his redeeming work. One of the ways that God saves and covers sin is through the testimony and the witness and the care and the function of community within the church. Do you see it? That's why the writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 3. He says, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly, to the end. Encouraging one another so that together we can see this through to the end. Be saints that persevere. And so we can be, as one commentator said, engaged in the community enterprise known as the perseverance of saints. This is what James is calling us to. Imagine living in this kind of community that stands shoulder to shoulder with each other, that allows space to ask really big and hard questions and gives space to process it, that believes that we hold the boundaries of orthodoxy tight so we're willing to disagree about secondary issues and love each other and not part ways. But it also has the freedom to ask hard questions that speak to the heart, not in a judgmental way, 
but in the manner of love. James says, if we're going to make it through this diaspora kind of sojourn called life, this is the kind of community we're going to have to be a part of. I'm grateful that I get to do it with you. Can we pray together?